and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, an iconic 1982 movie starring the original cast of Star Trek. Now middle-aged but still working for Starfleet, the Enterprise crew are called in to investigate a mysterious message from the space station Regula One. It turns out to be an attack from Khan, a minor but memorable villain from the 1960s TV series. Khan wants revenge against Captain Kirk for stranding him on a deserted planet and will stop at nothing to get it. So I am very excited to do this episode. I love Star Trek. This is actually a listener request from one of our uh, wonderful Patreon subscribers, Lee. Um, We are currently on a run of Patreon requests at the moment due to the lack of current releases and uh, all the cool choices that people are writing in with. Last week, we did Nigeria's highest grossing uh, movie, which is a rom-com called The Wedding Party. So we are getting an interesting variety of movies here. This, of course, is a mainstream American blockbuster. Um, But for reasons we're going to talk about in a minute, um, let's face it, I'm probably going to be doing a lot of talking this week. This is a different kind of blockbuster from what we currently see. I would describe the Star Trek franchise as unique. This movie is a continuation of a single episode of the 1960s TV series, which is an amusingly kind of... I mean, obviously you don't need to know any of this stuff because the film explains it, but the fact that they felt it was accessible to just be like, we're bringing back Khan as the main villain of this widely released film is highly amusing because this man was on one episode of the show in 1966. Um, the concept is that he is a genetically engineered villain from the 1990s who is frozen in a spaceship and then woken up and then is like, it's time for me to take everything over. And uh, Kirk, in the end, punishes him by leaving him and his crew on this random planet. And it's kind of the basis for um, a lot of Star Trek canon to do with uh, eugenics. And it, it becomes kind of more relevant in the later series and there's, there's just kind of like a lot of uh, kind of anti-eugenics political content in a lot of the Star Trek shows. This movie, not very political. This is just a fun, silly, often quite comedic and dorky, semi-action, but not very action-y kind of movie. Very enjoyable. And um, Morgan just watched it for the first time. I did. My expectations, I will confess to you, were quite low because I am not a Trekkie and... We had watched one of the other films together a couple years ago, which I remember very little of. And <laughs> my my basic like processing of that film was like, what is happening? I don't get this. Like uh, I think there was a lot of like space treaty talk. Yeah, I think I movie. asked you I asked you to watch the sixth. I think I think it's the sixth, maybe the fifth. The one that's kind of basically about the end of the Cold War. And there was a lot. I was like, well, Morgan loves the Cold War. Uh, <laughs> but actually what it is, is it's like the end of a long sequence of TV shows and movies about the same characters where all the characters are really established, as is a lot of elaborate, like diplomatic Klingon canons. So maybe in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, I do not understand this. And uh, so I was like, well, this is like an important piece of, you know, pop culture and sci-fi history. So like, I should see it. But I was not, you know, my expectations, as I said, were low. And uh, I had a really good time. This is a really fun movie. It's definitely like of a certain time and cultural place. Aesthetically very 80s. It's also quite low budget. Yeah. 
very like 70s actually I would say yeah like late 70s I feel like the fashion is sort of late 70s and then some of the kind of uh set design like there's a point where you see Kirk's office and you're like oh that you can really see how this turns into like one of the offices from Die Hard huh yeah well I feel like often with movies from the first couple years of a um decade it's still the last decade right because fashion doesn't change that quickly and also things are getting made before they're coming out so the clothes felt very 70s to me and also they're still like riffing on the show that's been on or was on for so long earlier than that so it's sort of in this strange place where it's not like a sci-fi movie that's just being created out of nothing in 1982 it's still building on all this other stuff that's existed for much longer like, there were some things where I was like, I feel like I'm missing something because I don't really know everything about these characters. But, like, I have seen enough Star Trek material at this point. Like, I know who the people are, basically, and so that's fine. And it does a pretty good job of not requiring you to have a huge amount of knowledge about that stuff. Like, it's just entertaining and, like, not that complicated. And um, Ricardo Montalban as Khan is so good that... He's so fun. <laughs> like, I mean, we'll talk about that in great detail, but... That really elevates the movie, I think, onto a level of entertaining that, like, was, yeah, it's just really, really fun to watch, even if you're not following all the, like, granular stuff, Star Trek stuff that, like, I was not, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's this kind of combination of, when I was watching the start of it, I was just like, God, this is so nerdy. But it's the combination of nerdy and just, like, really fun. It's described as, like, a swashbuckling adventure, if you kind of look at the way they talked about this film at the time and that's kind of the reason why Star Trek continued after this because you know now it kind of feels like this hugely established franchise but there was definitely a period kind of after the original series happened where it was like only Trekkies cared and through extreme perseverance it did continue but this was kind of the point where it really took off because there was another sequel movie like Star Trek the motion picture came out about 10 years after the original series finished and they were kind of aiming for a 2001 A Space Odyssey kind of thing. They were just really long sequences where there were just lights, just lots of lights. It wasn't very humorous. It didn't really lean into the relationships. It was nicknamed Star Trek The Motionless Picture. It was not <laughs> enormously entertaining. I have some affection for it as a fan, but um, I can see why that was not enormously well received. And um, this was like, okay, we're going to have another go, uh, much lower budget this time. Gene Roddenberry, who is, of course, the kind of creator of the franchise, had much less influence on this movie. And in the end, it was directed by Nicholas Mayer, who went on to direct several of the other best Star Trek movies and is currently involved in, like, the new franchise. And the screenplay is credited to a guy called Jack Sowards, but also Nick Mayer wrote, kind of basically rewrote the script. So a lot of it is kind of his influences he was aiming for sort of a naval adventure so you've got these two captains that are facing off against each other and they've got like an old feud and it's quite old-fashioned in a lot of ways they kind of add all these nautical elements like star like the starfleet people have these ludicrous like sci-fi versions of like a bosun's whistle and stuff which is just like sure it's quite light-hearted and they really do just have lots of moments which is where, where it's like fun friendship moments between the main characters which is what fans want And even if you don't know those characters, like kind of the charm of Star Trek is it's just a bunch of people who like sharing each other's space, you know. So you have like the main three are obviously Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And the kind of emotional driving force of the movie is 
Kirk's midlife crisis because he is now an admiral and he should really be a captain because he's not really good at working on a desk. But none of the later Star Trek movies kind of really attempt to do that thing that a lot of modern movies do with old aging action stars, which is be like, they're st- he's still in prime shape. It's like, he's not still in prime shape. <laughs> they're just like, very. they do very much acknowledge uh, that these people are in their 50s. And it's not a very action-y type of film. And I think that is really one of the strengths of these movies. The later ones give much bigger roles to Sulu and Uhura, but they are kind of backgroundy in this one. Yes, very, very minimal, which I found a bit disappointing. But one of the things that is good about the movie is that it is quite simple. I kept comparing it to like current sort of sci-fi action blockbuster-y type films in my head. And thinking like, wow, if this were being made today, there would be like 17 subplots about nothing that don't matter, that are just confusing and boring. And also there would have to be an action sequence every 15 minutes, which like J.J. Abrams himself, I think in interviews about the Star Trek movies was like, yes, this like the studio makes you do this and there is no alternative. (laughs) Doesn't matter if these action sequences mean anything or have anything to do with the plot. They're just like, gotta put them in. So you have people like running around shooting stuff because why sure whereas this it's literally just like Khan hijacks a ship and then they have to stop him yeah and the subplot is that there's this thing called the Genesis device which is a terraforming thing that just puts you know it will take a barren planet and just fill it instantly with all these plants and what have you and this is mostly relevant in the context of the next film um and you know, here they're just like, this is part of the plot, but obviously the thing we actually care about is the characters. So the main purpose of the Genesis device is it brings one of Kirk's ex-girlfriends, who's not from the TV series, I think, they just kind of invented her. And she is this academic who's in charge of this device. And she gets brought back into the plot because Khan steals the device and also wants revenge on Kirk. And during this film, you kind of find out about Kirk's old relationship with this woman and the fact that they had a son together but David the adult son is not aware that Kirk is his father yeah I mean I quite like the way these films deal with Kirk's sort of love life I think he is a bit sleazier in this film than he is in the others but like they don't really attempt to give him like a young sexy love interest it's quite clear that he and this woman parted amicably because they're both aware that he's not really capable of like dedicating his life to a family (laughs) um (laughs) And uh, yeah, and they also have, as with all of the Star Trek films, they kind of try to diversify the cast to a certain extent, which is kind of mocked a little bit in the TV shows where they're like, suddenly we've got loads of black female admirals, kind of like when, you know, Law and Order type shows, like every judge is um, a minority and all the protagonists are white. But um, in this, you know, they add in a couple of new female characters, the other one of which is Savik, who is... It kind of seems like she's a Vulcan. I think canonically she's half Vulcan, half Romulan. Does not come up. But she's played by Kirstie Alley and she's sort of uh, Spock's protege. So we get this really fun introductory sequence where they do the Kobayashi Maru test with her as the kind of Trini captain. Would you like to explain what that is for our listeners who do not have that off the top of their heads? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if people are listening to this, they've probably watched some Star Trek. But if not, the Kobayashi Maru is this test that you do when you like graduate Starfleet Academy, where it's like a test of leadership skills. So it's just like a simulation of like a spaceship battle where there's no way 
for you to win and for all for you to rescue everyone. It's a no-win scenario. And Kirk is the only one who's beaten it because he cheated by like reprogramming the test. And um, in this, you kind of see Savik, who is this sort of like very rule-following Vulcan character, obviously failing the test and then having the concept of it like explained uh, to her by Spock and Kirk. You see like some fun interplay between the way that Spock acts as a mentor, which is like very professional, and the way Kirk just doesn't really understand how to interact with just like a 21-year-old woman. So he's like, oh, I see you've changed your hair. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, also, the entire movie is, revolves around the concept of that test in a way that is quite yes. smart. I think the script is overall like quite good. It's crazy that it was written so fast. But part of this, like the downside of the simplicity that we were just praising is that there are ways in which it could have been slightly more thematically more complex, which would have yeah. been better. This is like, like the simplest Star Trek movie. <laughs> Right. So like the terraforming thing is obviously part of the anxiety around that is related to nuclear weapons because this thing if it like if you drop it on a planet it destroys all the life that is currently living there but it terraforms with this like new life form that they've programmed into it. And so they're searching for a planet that has no life that they can do this to, but obviously if someone who did not have altruistic motives got their hands on it it could be very destructive which clearly is like related to anxiety about nukes but they don't really like do anything with that it doesn't really go anywhere and then also like because i didn't have the background with Khan, like clearly this guy is nuts but when at the beginning when you first get introduced to him he's like kirk abandoned me kirk abandoned me and like he's gone nuts I at first was like, oh, are they going to do something where, like, Kirk has done this awful thing by, like, abandoning these people on this, like, fucking desert planet? And, like, no, no, that is not the situation. (laughs) Not at all. So there are ways they could have sort of made it a little bit more morally gray, and they don't really do that. But what I was most impressed about about the script is the way in which basically everything feeds back into this, like, moral dilemma at the beginning, where they, person after person is confronted with an issue of, like, what happens when there is no capacity for you to win? Like, how do you deal with that situation? And then the end is, I mean, we'll get to it, but like, it's the famous scene where Spock sacrifices himself, which everyone knows. And it's the yeah. culmination of that, right? And which is like very emotionally affecting. And I thought that that was just really smart screenwriting. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for Nick Mayer as a screenwriter, I think. I mean, I know there's like, obviously a lot of controversy over whether you should describe paid for professional writing as fanfic but he is like a primo fanfic writer because the two things he's most famous for are writing and directing several of the best Star Trek films and also writing uh, The 7% Solution which is probably the most kind of famous and critically acclaimed Sherlock Holmes novel kind of of the 20th century and he wrote another one that came out I think this year or last year that's also meant to be really good Um, so he's kind of taken these two really big iconic franchises essentially and he really understands how to kind of work those characters in a way that longtime fans find find uh, satisfying, while also kind of bringing fresh stuff into. So he also did Star Trek Four and Star Trek Six. So like the next one after this is not quite as good, and it's kind of the one where they bring Spock back to life. But then Star Trek Four is the one with the whales, which is the best Star Trek movie and is charming and hilarious and like a time travel drama. And then Star Trek Six is the one that I watched with Morgan, which is sort of a Cold War thing. And those just have really, really good scripts because like he, I think when he had like a bit more kind of 
time to work on them. He's very good at kind of balancing a large cast of characters, um, which is tricky, especially when you're like playing with people who probably have a lot of egos and like have a lot of thoughts about what their character should be and that sort of thing. But yeah, while this one is pretty low on the kind of political subtext that some of the others have, thematically it's very clearly about sort of aging and Kirk having a midlife crisis and coming to terms with mortality. And the original title was The Undiscovered Country, which they sort of recycled for one of the sequels. Yes, I I was found some of that quite effective and some of it a bit silly. I thought all the stuff with his son was total nonsense. Like, it's done fine. Like, it's not... There are other movies that have done that kind of thing worse, for sure. But it felt just, like, sort of unnecessary to me. And as soon yeah. as the kid shows up, you know exactly what has happened. I mean, like, it's, <laughs> it's not subtle. And he literally, like, is just like, oh, Kirk, I hate that guy. And then by the end of the movie, after they have interacted in a very minimal fashion, is like, I'm so proud that you're my dad. <laughs> no, 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 I do not appreciate that at all. And, like, part of this is back to the thing that we just, like, obsessively talk about all the time, which is that actors do not age normally anymore. They all just look like middle-aged people, because they are middle-aged people. And so Kirk is just this, like, aging guy. And even when they're not textually talking about it, which they do, of course, too, it adds a poignancy to the whole situation that I thought was really effective. And, like, Spock, too, of course, looks... Yeah. older and the whole like dilemma of like what is he supposed to do like he's really supposed to be a captain and i was like but he's old <laughs> like he can't do that forever like it's just not viable even if it is what he's well, it's good like at. it's very much in the sort of master and commander thing like there's a lot of master and commander in this where you have this captain who like personality wise clearly isn't meant to be like the sort of desk guy but that is completely true like eventually it's like you can't be the captain But I think also another thing that's quite unique about this as a franchise is that there is genuine character development with long-established characters, which you you don't... I mean, first of all, you didn't really get in TV shows at the time when this was airing. Like, it's very much sort of a show that's designed for syndication where you could watch episodes at random. But in terms of just movie franchises, like, the idea of long-term character development, like certainly doesn't fucking happen in Marvel. It's just like all over the place. And in this, a series where each movie was just like, oh, we're getting to make another movie and like someone else would be in charge. It's actually really consistent and interesting because they've got the same actors and they're so invested. And like you said, because they are actually aging. And so you have this thing where Spock becomes this very warm sort of mentor figure towards the end of the character's like life. I mean, he continued being in like TV series cameos into the 90s and stuff. And you've got kind of Leonard Nimoy like understanding like the like the weight of that character. And then William Shatner is sort of an intrinsically goofy person, but like if you can get someone who knows how to work with that, you can allow the sort of goofiness and the ego of Shatner wanting to be the hero, along with the fact that Kirk is this sort of very established figure within the canon who also is like no longer even remotely an action hero. And like the whole of the undiscovered country, like the later film, is all about how his kind of outlook basically as sort of an action warrior type is completely outdated because everything now is about diplomacy and he's not really able to get his head around it. Yeah. And like, as you say, that's this kind of thing that is not really imaginable in current films because these men are like Liam Neesoning everything and have to be action stars (laughs) until they're like 70. 
which, I mean, obviously none of these films is reflective of reality, but it's just no. a sort of... <laughs> I mean, in this you just have, like, you know, Dr. McCoy just sort of wearing the outfits he wears are always, like, extraordinary. I don't know why, but, like, he they're always like, okay, this man is going to look like he embodies the 70s. So, like, throughout the films, he's always wearing, like, really amazingly dated outfits. Like, in this, he's wearing a sort of, like, tan suit with, like, flares. I don't know. But he's just, just like, an old man sort of leaning against stuff, making curmudgeonly comments and being like, I'm retired. (laughs) (sighs) But yeah, let's let's talk about um, Ricardo Montalban as the iconic Khan. Amazing. Just amazing. I wish I knew, I didn't get a chance to ask him before we recorded, if my dad saw this when it came out. My dad is not a Trekkie. Like, he was a jock. Like, that was fully not in this zone. But I feel like he had seen this because I just remember... Like, as a child, hearing him say, like, Ricardo Montalban, because he just loved saying it. And I feel like he talked about Khan. Like, I just feel like it was brought up. He used to, like, quote movies and stuff a lot. Like, that was his, or, like, Saturday Night Live. This sort of speaks to the, like, cultural pervasiveness of this film in particular, as opposed to some of the other Star Trek movies. Um, This made less money than the first Star Trek, but uh, as the Wikipedia informs me, it was much more profitable because the first one had such a bloated budget. I mean, it's interesting to think about this franchise in comparison to, like, some newer stuff, because it's hard to think of an equivalent of something that was, like, on TV for that long and then sort of made the shift to movies and it had that kind of cult following. Like, I don't know that there's an equivalent, but clearly even people who were not into the TV show by the time some of these movies were coming out, like, it was... You don't make as much money as this movie did without yeah, having I mean, it's such a ubiquitous right? cultural presence. And, like, yeah. you know, it was re-airing for ages. And the fact that the fandom was so active, it's like they really kind of kept it going for ages. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, people love Star Trek now, right? And this yeah, show was airing in, like, the 60s. <laughs> but I feel like Khan, specifically, was, like, a character who transcended, right? It was, like, one of the really splashy guest stars, you know, because he he was in, like, you know, dozens of movies and TV shows. They brought in, like, a heavy hitter for this episode where they knew they were going to need a really great villain with stage presence. And uh, that's the reason why he caught on, and I can see why they wanted to bring him back for a movie. Like, why the fuck not? And, I mean, his entrance in this film is so marvellously theatrical, because, like, they have these two characters sort of beam down to this desert planet, um... And it's all very sort of like, you know, if Star Wars didn't have any money to make their their sets kind of thing. Yes. Um, and th- but then you have him introduced sort of at the, as this masked figure and he's got these kind of glam rock gloves with like metal on them and he sort of takes his gloves off and slowly unwraps his thing to reveal his incredible sort of feathered haircut, <laughs> like this wig, which is just an amazing haircut. Fantastic wig. And then he kind of goes on this amazing supervillain spiel for a while. And he quotes Moby Dick all the way through the film, which is always fun. Um, and then kind of at the end of this spiel, he removes his outer layer to reveal that he's wearing this unbelievable sort of jacket thing that just exposes his entire chest. And Ricardo Montalban was really into fitness. So he has some incredibly like prominent pecs. Um, which the filmmakers apparently had to assure people were real because <laughs> they were like, we're not, this man is not wearing <laughs> any kind of prosthetics. He really does look like this. <laughs> yeah, when he took the cloak off and 
I literally, I like shrieked with laughter and delight. I was like, what is happening? Like, ah! It's so good. It's so good. And I mean, he's meant to be a work of genetic perfection. So there you go. That opening scene of his where he gives this really long monologue to the two guys who have had the misfortune of being captured by him was the high point of the movie for me. It all was a bit downhill from there. I mean, I was enjoying myself throughout, but like, and like his subsequent scenes are still good, but I kind of thought they should have just continued to give him like room to chew the scenery more because (laughs) he gets this one scene where he literally just like explains what has happened to him for like 10 minutes. And I was transfixed. Like I was just beside myself with glee at what I was seeing. It's a very over-the-top hammy performance, but it is so skilled and committed that it doesn't feel... And he knows where to move, like, in like in a set and, like, to, like, play with props and stuff. So there's, like, there's always stuff kind of visually interrupting what he's saying. Yeah, it felt very much like classically trained theatre actor. Yes. <laughs> Let me go full out on this. And so even though it's over the top, it's never out of control because he's so just like, I am going to go for it. Uh, Yeah, I was just like totally mesmerized and delighted by everything that he was doing. With the exception of Leonard Nimoy, who's really wonderful. Like, no disrespect to anyone else in this movie, but like, he's just on another level, man. Like, I mean, he's a really good fit for William Shatner because William, I mean, Ricardo Montalban is a, a talented overactor like he's able to overact correctly and William Shatner is of course like he has a very specific performance style which does not allow any room for subtlety and has a lot of peculiar mannerisms that is the most generous euphemistic way of describing (laughs) an actor um yeah I mean he's good he's good at playing Captain Kirk (laughs) because that's his role and of course Nimoy actually is you know, like was a really good actor and really had a very deep understanding of his character. And of course, that me that is why they have such a great ending in this movie, which is this scene where Spock sacrifices himself and Kirk gets there just in time to sort of share his final moments and say goodbye before Spock dies. And it's a great moment in their relationship, obviously uh, referenced in many ways, an iconic moment for many Kirk Spock shippers, which of course by this point, 1982, that was a powerful element of the Star Trek fandom in sort of fanzine format. Um, and then in the next movie, they bring him back. I think that one was directed by Nimoy himself. And then the film after that, they actually just have him back in the driver's seat and uh, more marvelous Nimoy performances then. Well, I guess he didn't even want to be in this movie because this yeah. experience, the first one was so appalling. And then they got him back by saying, you'll get a great death scene. And then he had such a good time that he was like, well, you can revive me. So, like, it's fine. (laughs) But they really keep him dead for, like, a while at the end of this movie. And I was like, surely he's not dead. And I couldn't remember the, like, sequence of these films. Yeah. And I was like, have I just been so brainwashed by, like, current culture that I think that, like, no one can die in any of these movies? And then, of course, he was not dead. I was like, yeah. right. Yeah. I not mean, he's, he changed. comes back in the next one, which is literally called The Search for Spock. Um, but for most of it, it's not actually him. It's like they have, you know, he his body lies in the, lands on the Genesis planet and then it sort of 
it's it spawns like a baby which then grows up and they have to put like his memories back into the baby because the memories are trapped in McCoy's head. So for the first third of the film, the actor who plays McCoy, DeForest Kelly, has to be performing a split between his personality and Spock's personality. So it's like a really great performance from him. He he was actually like a really kind of he, had, he was a very experienced actor before he did Star Trek. But um yeah, great fun that concept. Amazing that that was aired in actual human cinemas on this planet. <laughs> And then in the next one, because it's a trilogy, so the third of the trilogy, they're like, well, he's back, so we're going to do a comedy time travel movie set in the 1980s where they go and save some whales. Oh, yeah. I mean, so much of what is interesting about these kinds of movies is is the social situation stuff, even if it's not yeah b- being deliberately, explicitly talked about, right? So, like, I just recently watched Minority Report, which is a very good and interesting movie. It's on Netflix. Uh, it's a Spielberg movie with Tom Cruise where they like see crimes happening in advance and then they stop them and then maybe the system is bad actually like you think and I yeah. feel like if you saw that movie when it came out you'd be like sure but watching it now it came out right like a year after September 11th watching it now you're like oh my god this is so fascinating because it says yeah, so really much want to rewrite. I really want to rewatch that yeah it says so much about like what was happening at the time in ways that I feel like if you saw it contemporaneously it just like wouldn't you wouldn't have sort of been able to grasp. And with this movie, even though it's not particularly political, as I was saying, like the nuclear stuff still, like you get the sense of like how pervasive that was in people's minds at the time. So like there's the Genesis project and that threat obviously is very pervasive. And then also the fact that Spock dies at the end by like sticking himself in a radiation chamber, which still now is like, oh god. And like Ricardo Montalban, of course, is not playing a Soviet person. But that sense of like the anxiety of this sort of like very strong, mysterious other running throughout the movie is still pretty interesting. So even though the movie is not deliberately trying to be particularly political, that stuff still seeps in, which is always the case with these sort of action sci-fi movies, I think, because you're making art in the time that you exist, so you can't avoid it. And I found all that pretty fascinating. And I'm sure the later ones, as you're describing, are even more explicitly, like, you yeah. know. Well, they have a lot, in, in the Wales one, there's like a whole thing where, you know, obviously they have Chekhov, who's Russian, and, like, he's having to interact with Americans just in, like, San Francisco in, in like, 1985 in the middle of, like, Red Scare. And he's just, like, baffled because he's just this kind of comedy man who's just like, hello. <laughs> and there's this subplot where they have to find, like, a nuclear warhead for some reason. He's, like, going around asking passersby in a thick Russian accent where to find the nuclear vessels. <laughs> so it's like they're they're having some fun. But I guess on that note, finally, we should talk about uh, how this film was ham-fistedly remade by J.J. Abrams in 2013 in the form of Star Trek Into Darkness. The worst, I mean, actually, there are technically worse Star Trek films, but this (laughs) film fucking sucked. (laughs) I never saw it. I was thinking about it while watching this movie, even though I never saw it. I remember you seeing it, (laughs) but I... Refused. I didn't particularly like the first of his Star Trek movies, which I saw in the theater and got very good reviews. And I was just like, as someone with no feelings about Star Trek at all, I was just kind of like, this is, I don't I mean, I, I think the first one is entertaining and it's quite clear that he was sort of practicing his action blockbuster movie pacing skills for Star Wars. 
thematically and kind of aesthetically it bears no resemblance to Star Trek it's very clear that J.J. Abrams has no interest or respect for Star Trek so I completely understand why people hate it the third movie in that trilogy um, is actually pretty fun not directed by him but yeah Star Trek Into Darkness widely reviled um, even before it came out that movie was it's directed by J.J. Abrams it was written by Bob Orkey, Alex Kurtzman and Damon Lindelof Orkey and Kurtzman are longtime kind of collaborators with J.J. Abrams. Um, Orkey is sort of one of these famed, or not famed because people don't really know who he is outside the industry, but like he is a Hollywood asshole. Um, he also was just like needlessly sort of going on Star Trek forums and talking shit at people, just like a baby. Um, and Alex Kurtzman is sort of currently the guy who's currently in charge of the TV franchise, which I have mixed feelings about in terms of him having so much creative control. And Damon Lindelof is Damon Lindelof. Now better known for better things. But um, yeah, this movie is like, as with a lot of J.J. Abrams movies, very derivative. He basically wanted to make his own version of The Wrath of Khan. This movie is not fun. Um, it cast Benedict Cumberbatch as Khan, which was a highly controversial move, because as you can infer from the name Khan, this character probably should be Indian. In the original series, obviously it was the 1960s and there was like a rather confusing situation around the casting where obviously played by a Mexican actor, there was no kind of implication that the character is meant to be Indian apart from his name. But also they intentionally were doing race-blind casting because Gene Roddenberry didn't want to only call out for a certain race for a character who was meant to be genetically superior. So he was just like, we want the person who is like the best kind of theatrical villain. But by the time you get to 2013, it's like, if you're going to like recast this iconic villain and be in this situation, you should be casting an Indian actor. And also like for ages beforehand, when they announced Benedict Cumberbatch in the role, J.J. Abrams was like, oh no, it's this other character. And they gave him like some other name. They were like, oh, he's playing Gary or something, you know? It was like literally like John like, Smith or something. It was John yeah. something. It was very generic white name. Ugh. And it, everyone was just like, fuck off. And of course you watch the movie and it, it's, a, it's a bad film. Um, they have him sort of like, it's a terrorist kind of role because of the whole post 9-11 thing. It's a very misogynist film. They're sort of like, they have this scene where they make this sort of new female lead uh, played by Alice Eve just like strip off to her bra. And I remember watching this and being like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Um, and it, it just is a turd. And then Star Trek Beyond, the next movie, is the, of the three new ones, is the one that's kind of closest to, war to the original Star Trek kind of themes. And it was directed by Justin Lin and co-written by Simon Pegg and Doug Jung, who actually enjoy Star Trek. Uh, so yeah, uh, what a turd. But also what it did was uh, copy the Kirk Spock death scene directly, but reversing the roles in the final act. And then they bring Kirk back in a way that suggests that they've now solved the concept of death and everyone is now immortal, but they don't explain that and just leave it. <laughs> so... I mean, the Benedict Cumberbatch thing, I just kept thinking watching this, like, the race thing is totally inexcusable. But also, why would you cast Benedict Cumberbatch in this role? He just does not have it. He does not have the thing that this guy has. Like, it's so... And I think Benedict Cumberbatch actually is a very good actor who has made very bad career decisions. So... I yes. wish him the best. Like, make better choices. I mean, if he was playing a different kind of stereotypical sort of British guy in a blockbuster movie villain, I think there are several he could do. Bring him in as a fucking aristocrat, which is what he looks and acts like. But this. But like, <laughs> I, it's just, so, I mean, the thing that's so 
great about this guy in this movie is that a he's very over the top but he had it's not exact i mean it's kind of sexual energy but it's it's just like panache that's so compelling he completely commands the screen when he's talking like you don't want to watch anybody else do anything and the thing he does right in that first scene where he's got these Chekhov and the other guy whose name I can't remember because he's not one of the main characters they captured at the beginning and they have these gross like creatures that they stick in their ears to like control great them. Great prop. Great prop. Fantastic. And I was totally grossed out and I'm like ugh. But he was so compelling that I was just like sure. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Let's just watch this go on you know. And that's really it's really hard to find an actor who's that level of charismatic. Even really good actors are not necessarily don't like don't necessarily have that particular kind of like screen presence, right? Watching it, I was like, it's so great that this guy got this role and is in this movie that remains watched, right? That people still love, but obviously, it's like depressing that he was in the position that he was in in Hollywood, which was like discriminated against, and like he worked a fuck ton. If you look at his IMDb, it's unbelievable. Like he was in so much stuff but it was lots of like one episode of a tv show right and like and he eventually wound up like buying a theater in hollywood and doing lots of like advocacy stuff for like the latino community which was great but in a different world this guy would have had a very different career which is just like depressing to think about but he has this one amazing performance in this movie that is still definitely known which is really nice and it seems like recasting that at all is kind of a fool's errand, but the idea to do it with, like, fucking Benedict Cumberbatch is, like, people, think for five seconds, oh my god, like, this is not going to work. It's always so wild when it's, like, casting directors whose one job is to, like, pick people who are going to be cool on screen. And obviously it's, like, largely geared towards a combination of, like, unwritten biases and like name recognition which is why Benedict Cumberbatch keeps being in these roles even though as we both say he is a good actor but is miscast in like so many of them and then you have actors who should be doing like really big showy performances but they're not so I was, I was just thinking about that now and I was like who is someone who is like could play Khan and it's Jodie Comer from Killing Eve right yeah. and I'm pretty sure she's gonna be playing like she's playing like character number four in like the next Fast and Furious movie or like the next Mission Impossible or something and it's like she should be getting a rose I don't <laughs> yes. mean necessarily she should be like getting like the big A-list like central role but she should be getting like the showy roles you know and like people don't people don't know how to cast no even though it is literally their jobs yeah oh. and some people some people just have it like Pacific Rim 2 which is like, compared to Pacific Rim, not that good. But John Boyega is such a movie star that you're like, great. There's a scene in that movie where he's literally just eating cereal. And I was just like, I'm going to remember this cereal eating scene forever. Because <laughs> he's like so good. And he's doing it opposite like Clint Eastwood Jr. Who's basically just a cardboard box. So it's just very, very blatant. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have not seen Mr. Scott Eastwood in anything, but... uh I believe I've, I've seen him in a bunch of things because I watch that kind of film. And I, what I will say for Mr. Scott Eastwood is if you created in a lab a sexy young Clint Eastwood clone, that is what you would receive. 
But in terms of personality and what have you, obviously, absolutely no. Absolutely <laughs> no. Just an empty sort of, don't know anything about him on a personal level, but my God, he's just nothing. I mean, it's not genetically passed down. It's, no. It's not how it works. Hollywood no. really the only, loves- The to- only one I can think of is Maggie Smith and her son, who is the lead actor in Black Sails, who is one of the greatest actors I can think of. So... I mean, Denzel's son is having a good good run. That's true, so, actually. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him in, uh, in, the, new, in the new Christopher, uh, Christopher Nolan movie. Yes. It's not like it can't happen. And obviously, like, Jamie Lee Curtis, famous example. It, but Hollywood is in this trend of, like, they just fucking love casting famous people's children. It seems like every star coming up right now is a, the child of a famous person. And, like, you know what? We don't need to do this. It doesn't have to be this way. Like, and the thing is, Morgan, you you are unaware of how much worse this is going to get because there's like a whole bunch that are currently getting famous on TikTok, partly exacerbated by the fact that they're all on house arrest. And once quarantine's over, every one of these sort of famous kids on TikTok are all going to be in a movie. And none of them are going to have acting training. <laughs> so- horrible to contemplate. <laughs> As some, it was like some casting director or director or someone was saying, like, you know, the Timothy Chalamets of the world, like, they're not from Hollywood. Like, you have to just go out and find them, and they're better. But no, the laziness, just endemic, right? <sighs> anyway, everyone should work a little bit harder. It'll be better. <laughs> well, that's the tangent we've concluded this yes. episode <laughs> movie we enjoyed it we love star trek um i love it when people request star trek and we love it in general that people are continuing to give us money on patreon to support the podcast and to get us to watch all the movies that they're requesting we have several coming up uh next week in fact we will not be doing a request we will be talking about the new spike lee movie which is coming out on netflix on friday i believe a real film one of the few real films coming out this year I'm really excited about this movie. Uh, it looks like it's a little bit of an Apocalypse Now kind of riff thing. Uh, starring many, many great actors of cinema. Because uh, if you're Spike Lee, you can do that. Because you can get literally whoever you want. So that's The Five Bloods, uh, which is on Netflix, starting on the 12th. And we will have that next week. There are a lot of Spike Lee films on Netflix at the moment if you want to sort of do some catch-up, which I will be doing this week as well, um, because I've seen several of his movies, but he is so prolific that there are just a lot out there. Yeah, I feel like I've seen more Spike Lee movies than a lot of films by other directors, but (laughs) percentage-wise, like, he's done so many that I'm like, well, not that many. (laughs) Yeah. So that should be really interesting. I've already read a couple interviews with various people involved that were very interesting to read and that's before the big PR push has even started so I think that there will be a lot of interesting stuff to read over the next week or two about that and everyone's stuck at home so they've got time yeah so I'm looking forward to watching that and then we will have other stuff uh, that people have requested in future weeks thank you guys all again for your continued support Uh, this movie by the way is on Hulu in the United States so if you want to watch and have access to Hulu. Very easy. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. 
Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.